came across a website called Action for Happiness and it says this. People who have meaning and purpose in their lives are happier, feel more in control and get more out of what they do. They also experience less stress, anxiety and depression. But where do we find meaning and purpose? It might be a religious faith, being a parent or doing a job that makes a difference. The answers vary for each one of us, but they all involve being connected to something bigger than ourselves. Now that's a popular website offering social commentary. Here's one from a business consulting group called Root. They are commenting upon an article by David Brooks, who's a senior columnist for the New York Times. And an article entitled, It's Not About You. This was the comment they made. Brooks suggests that the purpose of life is not to find yourself, but to lose it. He warns that the mantra of expressive individualism misleads on nearly every front. It most certainly can give way to three big distractions in a young person's journey to success. The root of the big distraction is a focus on it's me rather than we, as well as an unhealthy preoccupation with WIIFM, what's in it for me. What this seemingly innocent focus on self seems to overlook is the fact that most people that are truly engaged Leaders that are consistently effective and companies that are role models of success spend most of their time focused on things bigger than themselves. So whether it's a a popular website offering social commentary or a business consulting group occupied with much bottom line issues, the thing that is common in both cases is that meaning and significance come only by being connected to something bigger than yourself. Laisha's testimony was a perfect example. She said, I didn't know if people would ask me, what do you want to do? She said, I didn't know that until I got connected to something bigger, which is to make an impact in the world. Now, this is true, I think, not only for us as individuals, which is what these two articles are talking about, but I think it's true for a church as well. We, Rexdale Alliance Church, are more than just an isolated church. We are part of something much, much bigger. This was written, driven home to me recently in the last week when... Some of us as staff and some elders, lay people went to General Assembly, which once every two years, all of the churches in our denomination in Canada get together for five five or six days. As I listened to the impassionate preaching of of our president, David Hearn, on Tuesday night, and then as he gave an incredible report globally of what is happening around the world, I was deeply inspired. Uh, Then as I attended a workshop, uh, two workshops in fact, but one of them on discerning calling, it was such a timely uh, instruction to me at this stage in my life that I'm at. You know. And then four years ago when our president actually took over, he coined a simple phrase to keep as a vision before our denomination. And that was repeated several times. And it was simply this. The CNMA in Canada, Christ-centered, mission-focused, spirit-empowered. Can you say that with me? Christ-centered, mission-focused, spirit-empowered. And it occurred to me that as I begin this final series of three messages, it would be extremely profitable for us as a church and also to serve that purpose of getting connected to something much bigger. That we are not by ourselves. We are part of a a denomination of 450 churches that are being unified together increasingly under this vision of Christ-centered, mission-focused, and spirit-empowered through the leadership of a powerful, godly, and passionate man, I think, that God has brought into our church for such a time as this. Today, the focus, of course, on the first one, Christ-centered. And, and, you know, there's space in the bulletin for your customary notes. But I want to suggest something to you. At least I felt strongly as I was preparing this message. Don't worry about taking notes. I'll email the manuscript if you want. You can get the PowerPoints. If, of course, if the Holy Spirit prompts something, by all means, write it. 
But don't focus on that. I want you to listen with mind and with heart. Because the whole goal of this message is when we come with our last song today, I just hope it just explodes from the core of our being. Glorious Jesus. That's what it's all about. So just listen with mind and listen with heart. Let the Holy Spirit do His work in you. Because His, his work is to exalt Jesus. That's what He came here for. That's what makes us Christian, folks. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not rules and regulations. It's not going to church, putting money in the bank. It's Jesus. Otherwise, there's no Christianity. It's just another religion. And we might as well forget about it. It is all about Jesus. He is the center. So Christ's focus is what it's all about. I want to begin by talking about the word glory. What is glory? We use it all the time. We use it in songs. Christians use it all the time. But glorifying God. What is glory? Let me give you a working level definition. I want to keep it at the lowest shelf as possible so we can remember it. Glory is anything that makes us go wow. That's all. Glory is anything that makes us go wow. On my 40th anniversary, Sham and I were in Florida. And some good friends of ours had given us a gift certificate to a beautiful restaurant. And we're waiting outside one of those places where you have to wait to be called. And all of a sudden, an ordinary sky lit up like this. It was unbelievable. I had my camera with me. And I just, I just grabbed my camera. I said, hey, I have to go. I just went for a while. And I just, I just took picture after picture. And it, I just waited until the whole thing finished. For, I was just hoping they wouldn't call us, you know. Because <laughs> I didn't want to walk away from this display of glory. You just go, wow. And, and it demands to be captured. Now from a completely different perspective. We're in the NBA Finals right now. In 1996, I was watching the NBA Finals between the Chicago Bulls and the Utah Jazz. The, uh, Michael Jordan's last game. He was sick. It was, it's even called the flu game. He was sick with the flu. And yet he played. He put on a spectacular display. He scored the last eight points. And the very last time to the basket, he so completely deked the defender. The guy was on the floor. And Jordan went right past him. And I said, wow, wow. And I have that on video and I watch that regularly. Glory is anything that makes us go. Any display of excellence that makes us go, wow. Now, when you apply it to God, it's exactly the same thing. Any dimension of God's being or God's work that makes us go, wow, is glory. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the outshining of the glory of God. How can I illustrate that again in some simple words that you will remember all the time? I love the sun. I walk a lot. Now, when it's completely sunny like it was this morning, you really can't see the sun's rays. You can feel it, but you can't see it. You see everything by the radiance, but you can't see the radiance itself. But periodically, I remember sometime walking the ravine early in the morning, and it's kind of misty. And with the mist and the, and the angle of the sun is right, you can just see the rays just streaming through everywhere. All of a sudden, I said, that's Jesus, the radiance of the glory. He is the outshining of the glory of God. Jesus who, who makes the glory of God visible to you and to me. Everything about God that makes us go, wow, applies to Jesus just as much. He is the radiance or the outshining or the essence of the glory of God. It was so in his pre-incarnate state, before he ever came into this world. In John chapter 17, as he prays before he goes to the cross, he said, Father, the time has come for you to glorify your son. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. So, Jesus had that glory in his pre-incarnate state. 
And he was also glorious in his incarnate state. John chapter 1 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Only this time it defines the glory for us. We beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It was that unique combination of great and grace and truth that made Jesus glorious. To a people who had become so completely wearied by Pharisaic teaching. For whom the teaching of the law was a heavy burden upon their hearts. Who were already under Roman oppression as well. Who were also poor. All of a sudden this rabbi shows up and he teaches like nobody else. And that's why you read the gospels over and over. And they were amazed. They were astonished. They were Read the number of times amazed and astonished at his teaching shows up. He was glorious in his teaching. Now his incarnate life also took him to the cross. What was suffering? What was glorious about that? I mean, imagine him on the, what they call the Via Dolorosa, stumbling along that road to the cross. Back horribly lashed by the Roman lashes, forced to carry his cross, he can hardly wait for it. People are lining up the streets weeping. Is there any glory in that? It's the exact opposite of what the world calls glory, right? But it was glorious too. It was glorious. Michelle has written a beautiful song. We used to sing something called the greater glory of the cross. What was glorious about the suffering of Jesus? Because that was part of his incarnate glory. Let me just unpack that for you. First of all, by looking at what sin is. What is sin? Sin in, in its essence is exchanged glory. When we put something else instead of God for glory. Jeremiah chapter 2 puts it in the Old Testament very well. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? There are no gods. But my people have changed their glory. There it is again. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled. This is such a shocking exchange. Look at the words. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living and water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the substitution of created things for the Creator. Romans chapter 1 is the New Testament parallel to this. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And there it is again. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. This, this is the essence of sin. Sin in, at heart is exchanged glory. Now this, in other words, we go wow at everything except God. Or we go wow at something that God created more than at God himself. Now this creates a problem as far as human beings and their relationship to God is concerned. Precisely because God is glorious and he is committed to that glory... He cannot casually overlook the sin of exchanged glory. The heavens are appalled at it. So how how did God resolve this dilemma? That's why Jesus came. Jesus came as man to live a life of total dependence upon God. Where he chose the glory of God every time over something else. 
when he was arrested, when he was put through the mockery of a trial, when he was mocked in his office as prophet and king, what sustained him was the glory of God is worth it. The glory of God is worth it. When he was, when every time that Roman lash fell upon him and stripped, tore strips of flesh off his back, when he stumbled all the way along the Via Dolorosa, all the way to the cross, when the nails were being pounded into his head, he said, the glory of God is worth it. The glory of God is worth it. And then when it reached the apex, folks, as they continued to mock him on the cross, and then suddenly the sky grew dark, and he was forsaken by God. What sustained him was the, this was the cup that he knew he had to drink. And he chose to drink the cup because the glory of God is worth it. The glory of God is worth it. You and I should be rendered speechless by this if we would allow ourselves to think about it. He who knew no sin, who every day of his life chose the glory of God over everything else, became all of our collective sin of all the sin of exchange glory. So you and I could be forgiven by that glorious God and be brought into his presence. That ought to make us go, wow. That's why the crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus are glorious. This is what the gospel is all about, folks. Jesus, the gospel isn't Jesus came to give me, I could pray a sinner's prayer and have him into my life and I could be in heaven for the rest of my life and then live any way I want. That is such a truncation of the gospel. You know what the gospel is all about? What the good news is? Look at what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the people who don't believe in the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, look at this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the glory of Jesus Christ. In his pre-incarnate state, in his incarnate state, in his suffering, in his crucifixion, and now in his resurrected, exalted state where his name is above every other name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall. That's what the gospel is all about. Now, it so happens that as a result of his suffering, you and I get to enter into that glory. That's what he says the next part of it. But he said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is, this is so much more, massively more than praying the sinner's prayer so you and I can go to heaven. This is intoxication with glory. This is living for glory, however imperfectly. That's what baptism is all about. It's coming to that point to say, okay, this is it, God. It's not about getting to heaven. This is about making the pursuit of God's glory number one in my life. This is good. And by the way, it's gospel. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. That's why we began by saying it's those who are occupied with something other than themselves that find meaning and purpose in life. Now our response to this glory of Jesus, now that you understand what glory is, and how in Jesus the radiance of God's glory in his pre-incarnate state, in his incarnation, in his suffering, resurrection and ascension, he is glorious. How do we respond? That's a Christ-shaped life. What does a Christ-focused life look like? There are at least four strands to it that came to my mind. There's probably more, but these four just kind of hit. But the first one is, is repentance. Repentance of the sin of exchange glory. And I know for myself yesterday morning as I was going through this sermon, my, this is the part where I was struck afresh. Uh, a man named Paul David Tripp, in a series of little essays, wrote something about beauty, and, which is another word for glory, that really, really helps put some 
words and flesh around the concept. What does it mean to repent of the sin of exchange glory? I'll read slowly. One thing, one thing, one thing. It is hard to imagine one thing when I seem to be attracted to so many things. It is a continuing struggle. It is a daily battle. It is my constant war. The world of the physical attracts me, excites me, magnetizes me, addicts me. I confuse consumption with satisfaction. I confuse satisfied senses with true joy. I confuse a stomach that is full with a heart at rest. Sometimes I would rather have my appetite satisfied than a grace-filled heart. Sometimes I would rather behold the physical than have the eye of my heart be filled with the beauty of the spiritual. In the incarnation, the feet of beauty touched earth to reveal beauty, to teach beauty, to restore beauty, to help beauty be seen, experienced, worshipped, loved. But I still live in the middle of a beauty war. And in the fog of the conflict, I do not see beauty clearly. I am tired of seeing only what my physical eyes can see. I want eyes to see what cannot be seen. I am tired of craving people, possessions, locations, circumstances, positions, experiences, appearances. Do you see how many dimensions there are to the sin of exchange glory? Somewhere in my heart, I know that only you satisfy. Deep in my heart, I want you to be enough. I must quit moving, running, driving, pursuing, consuming. I need to stop. I need to be quiet. I need to sit in the seat of grace and wait. And wait until these blind eyes see until this cold heart craves the one beauty that satisfies the one beauty that is you. This is what repentance for the sin of exchange glory is like. It's, it's worth reading over and over again. If anyone, if you want it, please let me know. I'll be happy to forward it to you. So this is where I was spoken to afresh yesterday morning. So I just had to rehearse all the times when, uh, and the specific ways in which created beauty takes the place of original beauty. Now, his last few words also teach us the second part of it. Is not only repent for the sin of exchange glory, you then pray for a revelation of Christ's glory. You remember Moses. After God had called him to lead his people out, they had committed the sin of the golden calf, that quintessential idolatrous sin of exchange glory. By the way, that's how the Psalms refer to that event, the exchanging the glory of God. And then Moses is up in the mountain. And he's pleading with God. And he prays, teach me your way. Let your presence go with us. And then suddenly he breaks out into something he wasn't really planning on. Show me your glory. You know, if sin is exchanged glory, then our greatest need is a revelation of glory. Because like everything else, my brothers and sisters, self-denial will not solve this problem. The only way is to be captivated by a greater glory. That's why this is a foundational prayer. If sin is exchanged glory, our greatest need is a revelation of Christ's glory. And we take our cues from Jesus again. John chapter 17, and he, that's before he went to the cross. What did he say? Father, I want everybody that you've given me to be with me. Why? So they'll be happy forever in heaven? No, so they will see my glory. By the way, we will be happy in heaven forever because of the glory. Not independently. I want everyone that you've given me to be with me so they can see my glory. If that's what is waiting for us, we pray now for a foretaste of that glory. 
So from every which way it makes sense to us to pray. So this is a foundational prayer. <clears throat> now, one of the most common ways in which this prayer is answered, not, only, not the only way, but one of the most common ways in which this prayer is answered is as the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture to reveal the glory of Jesus to us. <clears throat> because scripture is a revelation of God's glory. I want to share with you probably the most powerful experience in my own personal life of a revelation of Christ's glory through the scriptures. I want you to come back with me to this. It was December 1st, 1995. I was sitting just right over there where Cheryl Tugan is sitting right now. It was our Christmas banquet. We all had a wonderful meal. And then Pastor Wayne got up here and started leading us in singing. I was not in the Christmas spirit at all. I did not want to sing. And I had no interest in changing my mind, attitude of my mind at all. I was extremely irritated at this external, externally dictated change of agenda that forced me to preach a Christmas sermon three weeks from that day. That's the mood I was in. And then I began to think, how many other people feel this way? Lord, how do we recapture the wonder? And what's going to happen if by December 24th, I haven't recaptured the wonder? What am I going to say to the people on the Christmas sermon? Oh, these were the thoughts that were going through my mind. Nobody around me was aware of all this. So I kind of made a deal with God. I said, okay, if worship is my response to your self-revelation, you're going to have to do this. You are going to have to help me recapture the wonder of the incarnation. So that when I get up to preach on December 24th, I will be speaking stuff that is genuine and authentic and not things that I've come up with to finish, fulfill my job responsibilities. But I'm also aware, was also aware enough to know that I have a part to play. Edwards talked about putting yourself in the place of allurement. Put yourself in places where your heart can be captured. And so for me that means regular reading of scriptures. And then in addition to that I was reading the essay from C.S. Lewis and Malcolm Muggeridge on, on the incarnation. Beautiful writers, you know. In fact in Muggeridge's book, Jesus Rediscovered, someone at the back said... My, how the man can write, even when he protests that he doesn't know how to write. You know? So th- you, need, you need beauty. This is, these are all for- sources of beauty. And then I was reading a little book by Max. And Max Lucado, I don't read a lot of Max Lucado, but this particular week I just picked up this book called When God Came Near. <clears throat> so I was reading. Two days later, I read this. Wide awake is Mary. The pain has been replaced by wonder. She looks into the face of the baby, her son, the Lord, his majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what he's doing is a teenage girl in a smelly stable. She can't take her eyes off him. Somehow Mary knows she's holding God. So this is he. She remembers the words of the angel. His kingdom will never end. He looks like anything but a king. His face is prudish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. And he is absolutely dependent upon Mary for his well-being. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable, through the womb of a teenager, and in the presence of a carpenter. She touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? That's when I started crying. How long was this journey of the incarnation? How deep was the humiliation of the incarnation? At that time, my mind began to wrestle with all the scriptures that I knew. And I tried to bridge the gap between the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ 
and the humility of the incarnation. Let me walk you through some of the scriptures. And will you please, this is where your, your mind and your hearts, I hope, will be stretched to breaking point and then beyond. Don't worry, that's where it needs to go. That's when you'll become worshippers. First Kings 8. By the way, remember, every statement about God is a statement about Jesus. The glory of God. The ra- Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Everything about God that makes us go wow belongs to Jesus too. So, 1 Kings 8.27 Solomon having built the temple But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. They didn't know it then, but we know today the universe is 15 billion light years in, in extent. That is an incomprehensibly large number. It wasn't big enough to hold Jesus. And yet he can come all the way to an infinitesimal little speck called earth. Bored on even deeper to one tiny little Jewish maiden at her prayers. And then go even deeper into her womb. Into a a tiny little embryo. That's how long his journey was. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. One of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament, there are many of them, about the absolute sovereignty of Jesus over the kings of this earth, is when Nebuchadnezzar comes to attack. Uh, he comes to a fork in the road. One road goes to Babylon, the other road, uh, to, to Jerusalem, the other road goes somewhere else. And so he casts lots. He didn't know that, who was c- controlling the outcome of the lot. God knew the time had come for his people to be get off to exile, and so the lot fell to Jerusalem. This was the sovereignty of Jesus over Nebuchadnezzar. And yet here he is, a tiny little embryo, in a helpless woman's womb, who is making a very difficult journey, almost nine months pregnant, from Nazareth all the way to Galilee, because King Augustus made a decree. That's how far his journey was. Then look at Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. (laughs) Like a garment. 15 billion light years can be rolled up like we roll up a sleeping bag. And yet he had to be wrapped in dirty linen. That's how long his journey was. Psalm 50, 10 to 13. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all the fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Please don't miss the irony. If I were hungry, I wouldn't be coming to you. That's what God says. You think I need to come to you when I'm hungry? And yet in Muggeridge's beautiful words, there in this table is God sucking voraciously at a human breast to be hungry. That's how long his journey was. Hebrews 1.3 he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He brought everything into being and he holds it together every moment by his word. And yet he is dependent on the arms of Mary and Joseph to hold him up lest he fall to the ground. That's how long his journey was. Isaiah 66, one. I love this one. (laughs) Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. A universe that's 15 billion light years in existence isn't big enough for his foot. Now can you imagine a baby Jesus learning to walk? He imagines his mother saying, come Yeshua, come. You can walk. (laughs) Come to Mala. And he stumbles. 
He falls. You pick him up and kiss him. Come, come, walk again. Daddy's waiting. This is the Lord of the universe learning to walk, folks. That's how far he had to come. That's how long his journey was. Then remember Egypt. Oh, by the way, before that, uh, look at this one, John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was that's Jesus, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This was Jesus. Brought everything into being by the power of His Word. Uh, now imagine the baby, a little one, learning to speak. What was the Aramaic equivalence of mummy, daddy? Can you imagine Mary and Joseph correcting him to speak and pronounce Aramaic properly? Can you imagine this one whose name is the word learning to read, write and speak? That's how far his journey was. And then of course, Egypt. We know Egypt reeled under the power of God Almighty. When God commissioned Moses and sent him. With an ordinary shepherd's rod becoming the rod of God, taking on Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the whole world at that time. Ten different plagues, each one striking at the heart of one of Egypt's gods. All of Egypt was reeling and begging Pharaoh, get rid of this man. And yet here is baby Jesus running to Egypt for protection from King Herod. That's how long his journey was. And then think of his education. Think of Mary, Joseph. Time to read the Bible, Yeshua. Teaching him about Abraham and Isaac. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And Jacob and Moses and Joshua. Speaking to him about David and his descendants. About the great prophets of the Old Testament. Whom the Spirit of God inspired. Especially Isaiah and his promises of the suffering servant. Jeremiah and the promise of the new covenant. Malachi and the messenger coming into his temple suddenly. Who, who, who was she talking to? Can you imagine the condescension of the incarnation? The emptying of Jesus that he became like a Sunday school kid having to be taught all this stuff all over again. He who caused this, this is absolutely mind-boggling and it should be. It should be. My mind immediately went to something I'd read by Hans Balthasar. Just a few months before all this happened to me in December, because in, in, I was on our, we were on our first sabbatical at that time, Balthazar writes this. It's called The Ecstasy of Non-Comprehension. He says, unless a person is acquainted with trembling awe at the thought of God's nature, and awe that reaches down to the very ground of his being, he will not be ready for the contemplation of Jesus Christ. Anyone contemplating the life of Christ needs to be newly and more deeply aware every day that something impossible, something scandalous has occurred. That God in his absolute being had resolved to manifest himself in a human life. He must be scandalized by this. He must feel his mind reeling. The very ground giving way beneath his feet. He must at least experience the ecstasy of non-comprehension. That's what was happening to me that day. Just two days after I prayed that prayer. And I sure got up on December 24th and preached with all of my heart. You know. That's one example of how the spirit takes the word of God. And helps you see glory. So, the shape of a Christ-centered life, repentance of the sin of exchange, glory, 
Prayer for a revelation of Christ's glory. Meditation on scripture through which the spirit reveals Christ's glory. And listen, when that happens, you only do one thing. You sing. You sing at that point. That's the overflow of divine abundance. Wow is, not, wow is a good starting point, folks, but it's not enough. That's when you harness the power of poetry and music. To start giving content to wow. The glory of a sunset that evening in Florida demanded that I capture it, every angle of it. And I only showed you three of about 20 pictures just from that sunset. And not leave until the last bit of glory had been wrung, last bit of joy had been wrung from that glory. The glory of a Michael Jordan demands that I watch that video, and I will many times. Although I hear Stephen Curry is almost as good. The glory of Jesus demands that we sing our hearts out to him and worship him. I, I, you know, I think of, there's so many songs. I'm, I, I'm from the hymn era more than the modern era, but so many songs of faith. Frederick Faber's is my favorite one. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, dearest Lord, forgive me if I say, for very love thy sacred name a thousand times a day. For thou to me art all in all, my honor and my wealth, my heart's desire, my body's health, my soul's eternal rest. To love thee so, to know not how my transports to control. Thy love is like a burning fire within my very soul. Burn, burn, O love, within my heart. Burn fiercely night and day. Till all the dross of earthly loves be burned and burned away. For thou to me art all in all, my honor and my wealth. O light in darkness, joy in grief. O heaven begun on earth. Jesus, my love, my treasure. Who can tell what thou art worth? What limit is there to this love? Thy flight, where wilt thou stay? On, on, my Lord is sweeter far today than yesterday. O Jesus, Lord, with me abide. I rest in thee, whatever betide. Thy gracious smile is my reward. I love, I love thee, Lord. Words like that help me. So find something that fills your, fills out the wow. So let's do that right now. Worship team, come and lead us in a song that celebrates and focuses upon his glory. Reading this morning, Psalm 130, it says, at one point, it says, yeah, um, With you there is forgiveness, so you are greatly to be feared. We don't put those two things together, right? We run away from someone we are afraid of, and we get casual about someone who forgives us easily. And yet he says, With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are greatly to be feared. Fear and grace. Holiness and grace just coexist together. And then as I came back here, Karen was reading for us something from uh, one of the prayers from John Piper's uh, extended meditation on the glory of Jesus called Seeing and Savoring Christ, a book well worthwhile reading. And there he prays about the, the majesty and the meekness. We sang about the lion and the lamb. It's, it's the same confluence of those things. And it's both that we need. And that psalm went on to say, Therefore my soul waits for you more than the watchmen wait for the morning. So that's my blessing. That you, you will long. Your souls will long more than the watchmen wait for the morning. For an encounter with this majestic meekness. You will never know which day you will need what. But be sure that you will get both. A majesty that humbles you and a meekness that loves you. May your hearts long for this more than the soul, more than the watchman waits for the morning. Go in Jesus' name.